This podcast is brought to you by the Uncut Podcast Network. Just call me Saul, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of awkward. I'm not in the it's classroom, okay. you know? <laughs> okay, all right. All right. It's all good. It's all good. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the conversation on Cut, and I am Abu. And tonight we want to talk about the current political climate in the Gambia. Plus, we're going to talk about accountability in our politics. Leng, what has been what has been your highlight when it comes when when it comes to uh, the happenings in the Gambia? Well, it's been, I think, an interesting week. Um, some surprises, some developments back home, but of course, some um, things that maybe we were expecting. Um, I think probably one of the main, I mean, surprises could be that the TRRC did not uh, submit its report. I think we were mainly expecting that at least this time around, the report would be submitted, but Unfortunately, it has been postponed and we don't know yet when exactly the report would be submitted because no definitive date has been that not expecting. Um, this time around, I was expecting that whatever the report would be submitted, but that did not happen. Probably that's one of the biggest surprises. <laughs> Um, somewhere in Tobacco Road, seeing the flooding that is happening there, speaking to residents what they feel about the flooding. And then this day after I watched the video, I say yesterday I saw Baro on the news as well, um, visiting the area. And one striking point for me was that Baro telling the residents that, look, I am the only one who can solve this thing. Those who came here, we are just going to talk, but they cannot solve it. I am here and I will solve it. And I was like, okay, okay, so you caused the problem and you would solve it. Okay, <laughs> what next could I say? So, yeah, some interesting, um, um, not taking responsibility, though, of the damage that has been done or of the problem that is happening. Of course, that is expected that he would portray that the project is already a success, that other Banjulians are happy, and the problem is just in that particular part of Banjul. So it would be interesting to see how that turns and how Banjulians in particular would vote come December 4th. I think those were at least, I mean, the key highlights for me from the Gambia during the week. Sally, what about you? <laughs> I saw something very interesting. I'm trying to find a link. I don't know if you guys saw it. There is a promo video going around. I think it was posted by Kirfatu, um, the media page about Borough planning on building like five hospitals and new buildings. Have you guys seen what I'm talking about? They've been posting it like almost every day on Facebook. Is it a promo from the Borough Campo? I think it is because they've been only on Twitter and and I'm on and off. So I follow the Friday network and stuff with usually like on like their website and if they post something on YouTube, but it's not like I have them to be on YouTube all the time. But uh, one of the most important, I mean, one of the most interesting things that came out last week um, was a new unholy alliance between former Jameh enablers and UDP and you know I've been saying this for the longest the idea of morality and this argument that some political party represents victims or something is really ridiculous uh, because who really has actually any right to speak for the victim nobody does perhaps the victims can that's fine and some victims are politicians but if you have somebody like um, uh, you know, two weeks ago, when everybody was just losing their minds about the coalition between Baro and APRC, everybody was talking about the victims. We all knew that for a fact, most of the people, especially the politicians, they're just lying. They didn't care. Nobody cares. And even if that was the point, 
well, Ojegalo is a victim too. And he has a right to say that, well, this alliance is not that bad. Because again, this is, at the end of the day, some of these things is about, uh, it's about perception, right? And uh, one thing we need to understand, I mean, these parties, they have to win elections. Everything else is a bunch of noise. And I feel like we get consumed by that noise and getting to hold this uh, holy whatever nonsense is there about victims and stuff, really. If we care about the victims, let's take the stuff to court. It's not about the political arena. Anything political politicians say in the arena is for votes, period. It really doesn't matter whether they're victims or not. Anything they say in the arena is about votes. And lo and behold, last week, that was very evident to us that politicians, in essence, are immoral. They are. And they pick and choose who they can affiliate with. And if, you know, the, the argument that APRC is this a moral party, which probably is, but all parties are, right? But if you make that argument, then, you know, Barack can ma- also make another counter-argument, that you're, you know, getting all these people, the Sabalis and the Amadou Skadal Jams, these people actually work for Barak, for, uh, for, for Jamne. They can make the same argument, that, well, you know, you're having all this little stuff, well, instead of picking the crumbs, I'm just going to go and just consolidate the entire party. <laughs> and literally, that's what happened last uh, That's what happened two weeks ago. And uh, last week, we uh, saw the new coalition. And I did see that Usina Davos, you know, he's trying to distance himself from um, uh, Baba Dinning. But to me, that's just a bunch of noise, really. It's really immaterial. And I feel like, as people who observe and consume politics, we need to be a little bit matured about how we actually approach the polit- uh, our politicians as well. Because it's so dishonest when we get into these silly arguments about victims. Or, yeah, this party represents victims. This party is the party that actually... Well, no, APRC technically was not responsible for what happened on the Jambi. The Gambian state is responsible. Because the people who did the killing were not some APRC fanatics. These were people who were agents of the state with the might and power of the state behind them. So the Gambian people are responsible for this. It's very easy to pick, pick and choose which party is moral and which one is not. But the Gambian people as a whole should take responsibility for what happened on the Jammeh, not some one party. Because all of these people are also part of all of these parties too. So it's a Gambian problem. And when we talk about politics again, let's just take out this silly argument about these victims. Nobody actually cares about the victims. And, and I mean, when I say nobody, I'm talking about politicians. Whenever they utter the name of victims, they're using it to get votes. And who decides who is the good victim and who is the bad victim? So does that mean that um, 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 uh, OJ Jali is a bad victim? And that makes Usenodabo a good victim? No. Again, this idea of good and bad is really, you know, it came to the fore when, um, what's her name, Olidiba Wada said that there is no good or bad. It's a simple strategy to go and grab the entire APRC and bring it on board. So uh, definitely that is what happened and that is what we've seen. Um, And I don't think um, if any party is serious when it comes to who is accepted to speak in a party rally or not, or who cares about the victims, like um, Saul put it, I mean, there should be a clear policy if you are really interested in the victims that we are not going to entertain any um, jamme enabler I mean, you you got to define what that means, of course, because in all of these parties, we can see people who have served Jammeh in the highest level as ministers. Um, So you name them in different capacities, joining all these parties. So if you are really serious about um, the victims and you don't want to entertain any Jammeh enabler, whatever that means, then by this time, every party must have had a clear policy on that, what that really means. And how they are going to be given platforms, etc. But just to say, okay, this was not planned, it was it just happened like that, it was very spontaneous. It simply means that there is no clear policy when it comes to who speaks at part I mean, a party like the UDP at their rally or not, and how they avoid interacting or hosting, I mean, high profile enablers, if I may use that term, in their platforms. So for me, um, I mean, it's not something we could call a mistake Also, It's just what political parties do. And I think um, that's why people who are really serious about defending, I mean, the right of victims and ensuring that the needed reparations uh, are given or are done, then, I mean, joining political parties also could be another thing else because we've seen how people are defending 
things that we know that if it had happened in another party or in another forum that's not political, the debate would have been something else. But because it is happening in your party, you got to defend the party. So that becomes, I mean, a different thing. Okay. So uh, definitely, I think uh, there is a need, especially for civil society organizations and other movements or interest groups that are promoting um, the rights of the victims to know that, well, um, they have a lot of fight to do, or a good fight, I mean, to win. And it was really good to see the Victim Center um, come out with a statement to really condemn um, what happened during the week. And I think that is really great, and I think that is a position that we expect from the Victim Center to definitely be a representative of the victims, because we've seen what parties are doing and what parties have done when it comes to entertaining people who really, really uh, defended Jammeh, not just defended Jammeh, but the violations of human rights in the Gambia. It, and, you know, things happen, but I think it's important to communicate with the people. It's a very small country. They're victims. It shouldn't be that hard to communicate some of these issues. Um, when it comes to things like what is going on in the flooding in Banjul, I mean, it's just a disgrace. Um, millions and millions has been spent um, on those roads, and there's nothing to show for it. So I think having a president or any other political image trying to use that for political gain is actually a disgrace. Um, and I don't think I'm not surprised. I don't know about people who live on the ground, but I'm not surprised that things happen like this. We've seen it with the airport that was leaking after millions being spent. Um, so I think we need to look more into some of these leaderships and hold people accountable. What? needs to be done to to heal the social and political divide i think that's very difficult to answer but um i think personally what i think is we need to be discussing issues more and probably many a times that is lacking um, many people don't want to engage in issues and I think that's why most of the time the discussion gets nasty because we start discussing things that become personal, I mean bringing in some prejudices etc. But if we were just to discuss policies like probably we've done here and it has happened in other forums as well then definitely issues are, are discussed and people can engage I mean idea. Uh, exchange ideas and learn from one another. But as long as we don't discuss issues, then of course we have to discuss personalities and that becomes very much problematic. But um, on the other side also, I think there is much need for tolerance. Um, Gambians are not very tolerant and sometimes people don't want to accept this, but we are not very much tolerant. And I mean, that's very much simple to understand. Just get into... An argument, and when I say an argument, I don't mean the Gambian interpretation or meaning of an argument, just an argument debate to discuss issues. And people start insulting your mother, they start calling you a hater. We find it difficult to disagree. I don't know whether this has to do with the way we are brought up or whether it's about the education system or what factors are responsible for this. But generally, it's very much difficult for Gambians to engage in constructive debate or discussion. And of course, People do ask what is constructive, but whatever that means, the context I'm using here is constructive. Just to discuss issues without going personal, without insults. It's very much easy to a Gambian to cause your mom. So you see that intolerance in the society. And I think one thing that we all need to do, uh, whether we are in political parties, whether we are not affiliated to any political party, is to be very much tolerant, to listen to others, of course, and then respect other people's opinion, their political affiliations, etc. That is on, the only way to ensure that, I mean, the election or the election rearing uh, period in general is peaceful. But without that, then it becomes problematic. Yes, I don't like the APRC. I hate Jammeh. I've criticized Jammeh. I mean, the APRC in general and everything. But yeah, if you see that the APRC is the only party that you like or that you can support and that you are going to vote for, fine, I will criticize you for um, in defending the APRC. And when I say I will criticize you, I mean your 
party's policies and whatever beliefs you hold for supporting that party. But then at the end of the day, I don't have any personal problem with you. And that's it. I'm tolerant enough to say vote for whoever you want to vote for. But as long as I am concerned, I would not vote for your party. But many a times that is what is not happening and therefore things get toxic. So I think there is very much need for tolerance and of course to discuss issues than just discussing some petty things here and there. Saul? Yeah, thanks, Abu. And I think the, the problem with our debates is that lack of depth, right? Lack of ideas. Uh, so we tend to get into these polemics, you know, ad hominems, you know, causing each other because our parties are not crafted around ideas. So they're crafted around the cult of the person. So that is very personal, right? I mean, if somebody comes online and causes Cristiano Ronaldo, I'm going to come after you. Because for me, that's a cult hero. That's actually how people consume politics in the politics in the Gambia. And that's how we see our politicians. Our politicians are basically demigods, right? If you say anything about one political party or their leader, people are going to come gone blazing. But if you look at their manifestos, it's, you know, it's just this narcissism of small differences. Because the arguments are very marginal. The policy differences are very marginal. Um, they are really not tangible, serious policies coming out of most of our political parties. And because they know that, that's why they are so lazy in their work, in their efforts to actually put out solid policy agendas, because they know people don't care. Because the people don't care about the policies. That's why the report that just came out, and I saw that 20, uh, 63% of people are voting for a party because of their manifesto. All those people are lying, and we know that. That's absolutely impossible. Because... These, some of these, I mean, they, they, the, the research was conducted between July and August. Okay, Most of, many of our political parties didn't even have manifestos until September. So how is that even possible? How is that even realistic that all of their followers, 63% of the government populace are saying that that's not even realistic because that's not how we consume politics. Actually, that's not even how people consume politics anywhere in the world. So the idea that we need policies for people to support and whatnot. It's just ridiculous because nobody is actually going to follow those policies or care about policies. Few people do. Few people in politics across the globe. It doesn't matter whether it's an advanced democracy or a place like the Gambia. People are attuned to the drama. People are attuned to the cause of the person. That's actually why people vote. I mean, in 2007, I remember when Obama was running against Hillary and all those people, he was the least qualified of all of those people. You know, the Bidens, the Christopher Dodds, and uh, the Mike Gravels, and Hillary Clintons and stuff. But he won, based on the cult of the person. Because, you know, he was this hip black guy, you know, out of, Can I mean, out of Hawaii, you know, grew up in Chicago, or whatever, and then he became this cult hero. Because people consume that. If you look at a party like UDP, Usain Dabo is a god. He is a hero. He is their hero. And nobody is going to change that. And nobody's voting for him because of a policy. They don't care. It's the same for Jamaica. The base, the APRC base, they worship the guy. They will do anything. I mean, look at somebody like Lantamong Tamba. This guy was incarcerated by Jammeh for years. And now he's one of the people who's actually leading the charge to get Jammeh back into the Gambia. Because again, the way we follow politics is very cult-like. It's not about ideas. So that's why when you challenge somebody on their party ideas or why they support the party, they get emotional and they get defensive. And that's understandable. But... That's actually that's just how we consume politics. It's just these margins, right? It's driven by arbitrary whims. And, you know, it lacks depth and it lacks ideas. And hopefully in the not-so-distant future, we will actually have a politics that's matured enough. Where we... Sally, do you find it difficult um, discussing politics with uh, people um, that are of uh, different political views of you, from you? <laughs> Um, I think so. I think first and foremost, as a female, um, it's really hard to speak within that space. But I like some of the things that Len and Suleiman has mentioned. I think with Gambia, it's very unique. It's very personal. Um, for example, for like UDP, this has been the face of their party for the past 20 years. This is a man who has been in politics for many years. This is somebody who's gone to jail 
it's very personal. And then no matter how much we want to deny it, the whole idea of whether you're Mandinka or Jola and all these tribal issues is very much part of the conversation. There's no politics without tribes. So I factor in all of that. Same thing with Jame. Um, a lot of the Jolas and, you know, really so guy who, you know, because Jolas were looked down upon for a very long time. So for them, this is their worship. This guy is their leader. So when it comes to policy, um, it's very difficult to have some of these conversations with them because even the policies they have in place, are they even implementing them? I don't think so. I haven't seen policies are actually being followed. So I think the whole manifesto and all this point ideas are great. It's great for politics. It's great for getting votes. But are they really going to implement them? And do people really care at the end of the day? I think most people just want the bare minimum. They just want their electricity running. They just want to make sure they have food. And the economy is in a decent point. I don't really think a lot of the Gambians, well, the mass population really care about policy. So um, it's hard to have conversations with people if that's not something that they really care about or really understand how it affects them. So that's my opinion. Spoken about, because if you look at the Gambia, uh, the current political climate, actually, it does not reflect the decency of our people. Uh, because in Gambia, people do not talk talked about politics. We do not talk about real issues. What we talked about is like uh, personal issues. And politics is more than that, actually. So I think what uh, we need is uh, to have an open conversation. But this conversation has to be genuine. Uh, genuine in the sense that we need to detach ourselves from the tribal line. Uh, because <laughs> this is something which is so sad. Uh, often at times, uh, anytime I have conversation with colleagues, friends of mine, many times uh, uh, this tribal issue always comes into play. And uh, I could recall one of my conversations with a friend of mine. This is what the guy told me. This guy is a UDP supporter, by the way. Uh, he just told me, Malang, look, you know, uh, I was so shocked with this statement uh, from a colleague friend of mine uh, that, uh, you know, politics actually should go beyond this, actually. Uh, because politics, we need to talk about real issues, issues that affect the daily lives of our people. But uh, sad enough, in the Gambia, people are not talking about these issues normally. And I think uh, I think Dr. Saul or Len talked about uh, you know the the the, the so-called manifestos. I think this is something which actually uh, it worth discussing because if you look at most of the political manifestos, actually, just like what Sally talked about, uh, they are not followed to the latter. I I don't know what is the issue uh, because once these people get into the office. They totally forget forget about the, the, the policies, the laid down policies that they campaign for. Uh, but me, I think electorates now, uh, we should hold these people, the office holders, uh, accountable for 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 uh, for their promises. These are some of the issues that I think we should uh, uh, work on as electorate. But sad enough, uh, you know people hold office holders accountable. So that tells you more about our politics. That tells you also more about the, the level of uh, uh, political awareness. Maybe I can borrow the word political education. Uh, so these are some of the issues that we need to improve on until and unless we work on these issues, detach ourselves from tribal line, uh, politics based on issues until and unless we do this thing, our politics is, you know, uh, is always going to be personal. And anytime we, we come into the personal area arena, it is always going to be tense. Uh, so these are some of the issues that I think we need to address uh, to, to forge ahead. Leng, I'm going to come back to you because we cannot talk about uh, the political climate and the some sort of uh, aggressiveness when it comes to our political discussion. We are talking about the the media. Uh, what what do you think about the media coverage of our politics? 
Well, I think at least we need to acknowledge that um, there has been improvements, um, at least this time around, in terms of fair coverage, etc. And that's it's really good that, I mean, the media is really discussing issues. Um, the radio stations are hosting important programs. Um, some of the tele- TVs are also doing that. Um, of course, there is another side, of this media, especially the social media, that you cannot regulate, where people just go and spew whatever they want to. I, I think a lot of the hatred can be found in probably the WhatsApp um, audio messages. We've had it, we've seen it, um, people just going against orders just on that. But when you look at the traditional media in particular, the radio and the TV, I think um, a good work has been done at least in trying to bring out important issues of course here and there you may conclude that well this particular media house is tilted towards party x or party y but yeah at least we can see a variety of coverage of political activities um, discussions and debates um, in in some instances for instance um, the last political debate we've seen, uh, we are not just on we are not p- on personalities, but issues we are discussed, and and that's really important. But beyond that, also, I think the media should um, not just to call politicians and debate, but also I'm finding I'm trying to find I mean the proper word to frame this, but. They should be shaping the debate when it comes to issues in the Gambia, not just to wait for politicians to come and set the agenda for for us. But that is what the media does. I mean, in in established democracies, the media helps in setting an, the agenda of framing the debate and discussion itself. But why are we not framing poverty or setting um, poverty as an agenda? Why is the media not doing that, ensuring that politicians come and tell us how are they going to tackle um, the high poverty rate in the Gambia? We are talking about almost half of the, our population, 48% to 49%, according to some estimates, of the population is poor. So why is the media not setting that agenda so that politicians come and discuss poverty, so that the entire campaign is built around poverty? So I think that is one thing that the media should do. Of course, I mean, because there are different media houses, it's difficult to say, okay, this is what the media must direct uh, politicians and the electorates and the electorates towards. Of course, that itself has its own disadvantages. When you give the media so much power that every discussion uh, Every agenda revolves around what the media um, sets. That itself comes with its own disadvantage. But I think at least that is one thing that the media can do to help us to ensure that we don't discuss personalities. Let them bring set the agenda. Let's discuss poverty, unemployment. Like we've talked about the manifestos, which are very much important. Okay, But you look at these manifestos. I mean, which of the manifestos is telling you by what percentage are they going to um, reduce the unemployment? Um, rate of the country or youth unemployment. We are not seeing that in the manifestos. Yes, you are going to create jobs, you are going to create um, housing, etc. You are going to invest in basic education, etc. You are going to award contracts to young entrepreneurs um, to help them. But how is that going to contribute to reducing the rate of poverty? How is that going to um, contribute? to ensuring food security by one percentage, for, for instance. So that is what we are not seeing. And I think it would be very much important to see the media at least working more on setting um, that agenda. That would be one great contribution. But I think when it comes to debate, that that is one good improvement that we've seen this year around. We've seen the media so much opening so much to different candidates, inviting different candidates to come and debate. And of course, that is laudable, but we need to do more, especially if we want to get rid of um, these personality discussions, etc. Sally, I'm going to bring you on, then Saul would take from after you. Um, so I definitely think that the media has done an excellent job this year, um, especially with the debates. I thought that was really good coverage um, first time. Um, I've also seen a lot of engagements on social media. I mean, look at us here on this space. We're engaging in conversations about politics. And what I liked the most this year is a lot of the youth are very much involved in the process, including myself. Like this is the first year. 
I was actually looking at the same report mentioned earlier and I was fascinated by it too because the the numbers to me don't seem to add up to the reality of as was discussed the the strife on social media and what is discussed and all that but I am curious as to the fact that roughly f- I believe 40% of people said they're undecided and I'm just curious as to what uh people believe is the their reasoning like why because there's no lack of political parties for them to support they're just for whatever reason I'm, I'm curious as to reasons on the ground reasons heard from the diaspora i'm just other than in other than what is given directly in the report if like for example one of them is on un, uh, employment when parties do discuss that so I'm curious as to why they're undecided if, for example, all parties are promising jobs, what led some people to be decided and what led others to be undecided in regards to on the ground factors, if I, I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, Emil, all right, this is Saul. So I used to be part of a group. Uh, so we used to do polling when I was um, you know, full-time on, on campus. We used to go out and collect data and stuff. And a good many people would tell you that, no, nah, they're undecided. All undecideds, for the most part, are liars. And that's the fact. In, in a polarized environment, undecideds really do not exist. You know, they're very marginal. They're like few people that are undecided. That's why that polling is super suspect. And the other problem is that that polling represents, I mean, the respondents. Only 28% of the respondents are women. I mean, we have more women um, registered voters in the Gambia than men. So that poll in and of itself, just by that metric, right, just looking at that, you know, that number, really is, is a skewed poll. It's a biased poll, right? Nobody can rely on it. Again, I need to look more into it. I'll spend some time maybe tonight, if not tomorrow, uh, digging deeper into the numbers, but 40% of the Ghanaian population saying they're undecided. I mean, who are those 40%? Like, who are they talking to? And I, I need to know who these people are because 40% is a really big number. That's like four out of 10 people say they're undecided. And I'm not sure that is borne out by the facts, you know? So it'll be interesting to look into the data and um, dig into it. But one thing based on my experience with polling, people are not truthful. They're not honest when you poll them. So that's why you need like, how you frame the question is very important. Uh, do you have any follow-up questions to that kind of stuff? Because sometimes you may ask a person, oh, do you support Trump? And they'll look like, no, I don't like the guy, but okay, who are you going to vote for? Then that, it becomes a whole different ball game. You know, are you going to vote for Trump or Biden? And they're going to end up telling you, oh, yeah, I'm going to vote for Trump. Because the question, the way it's framed, you're not asking them the right question. So asking the questions or how you frame the questions are also very important. But any polling that tells you that 40% of the population really is undecided and that 63% of the population is going to vote based on a manifesto, it's not a solid polling. I mean, really, we all know that. It's not rocket science. Well, can I come in, Abu? Yes, you can. You can. Okay. Okay. I also just saw the, that 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 you know that report, uh, the one uh, the survey conducted by the is it uh, Center for Strategic Studies or something like that. But uh, I think uh, there are several explanations to the forty percent undecided uh, in the Gambia. But uh, me too, I have my own reservation on that, and I have not read it in detail. Uh, but one thing for sure, uh, I know that I can say here is that. Many of the, the, you know, many of those that are involved in, in, in that survey, I know them personally, I know their uh, research capability. Uh, I know Dr. Jobate, Dr. Jobate and myself work together on some projects, actually. Uh, so, uh, actually, myself, I've not seen them, you know, I've not read the document, so I cannot comment more about it. But uh, the credibility of the person, you know, the, the, the personnel that were involved in it, uh, I think, you know, it is going to be kind of premature if we can just sit here and, you know, uh, you know, we, of course, you know. Uh, so one thing I know is that looking at the, the political climate currently in the Gambia, it is so crowded. 
that is one secondly uh, if you look at the the, the data from uh, iec uh, i think majority of voters are females but despite that that should not be the artistic of course uh, and again again if you for example uh, like I, I, if you look at for example the the the, the questions that they pose actually uh, I've not read, read it in detail, just a glimpse of it, but uh, you know, I've not seen anything too much faulty, something that will warrant it to, to totally uh, rubbish the, the, the survey. Uh, this is my honest opinion about it. Hey, Malan, they're probably good people and good husbands and PhDs and stuff. But if you're, if you're polling, if you're, if you're doing a survey, if you're surveying a randomized sampling of a demographic group or say a country, you actually have to sample it in a way where it actually makes sense. Gambian women voters are almost six out of 10 voters. And this polling, they're three out of 10. They're less than three out of 10. That alone is a biased poll, period. That's, that, that should be the benchmark. It has to be weighed to where it is actually appealing to. So for example, here, some, one, one of the ways we do polling here uh, we don't just randomize, we do randomized sampling, but we also look at um, the education of a person. We look at their income and all that stuff. And in Gambia, the gender dynamic is very important. The regionalism is important. I did see that there's some regional stuff in there. I haven't dealt, I haven't, you know, I need to dig a little bit deeper into that. But the number one thing, if you have 28% of respondents being women, they should not publish that poll. They should go back and actually get a proportional representation of the voters, that way they can bring out the facts. Anything other than that will be skewed. Like I said, uh, the issue here is I'm not, I'm not trying, I'm not here to make a case for them. Uh, even myself, when I saw 40%, it, you know, it, it, it is so overwhelming for me. But uh, what my question here is this, like. Uh, you know, both you, yourself and me, we didn't read this document. So I think it would have been much better for us to read the document in detail uh, before we can just, you know, uh, try to scrutinize it in detail. But, no, I don't need to. I don't need to read that. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't need to read the report now to tell you that the 28 percent of the respondents being women is a flawed polling. Period. You cannot use that. You cannot use that as a as a yardstick to just call it a you know a, you know a, a, a mistaken. So of of it's course you cannot do. It. It's not representative of the of the demographic. It's not. It's not. But but have you seen the data from from the from the IEC? That is the issue. And again, yes, I have. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Uh, okay, like females dominate normally. Women are a majority vote of voters. So probably, you know, they have their reasons. We need to find their reasons. Just like you, you know, when I saw this thing, I was like, it was overwhelming for me. 40% undecided voters in Gambia? No, maybe there are several explanations to this because this is the first in kind that we have opinion polls prior to, uh, uh, you know, prior to a presidential election. These are all factors responsible, for, you know, there are so many factors, you know, that could be responsible for this. So uh, me, I'm not here to make a case for them. Just like yourself, I'm so, you know, I was so over overwhelmed when I saw this thing. And again, I'm more particular about their sampling size, you know, the sampling strategy that they use. So I'm more particular about this thing. So I've not, like I said, I've not read this document. So obviously I need to just go back. I'm not here to make a case for them, but uh, I think it is kind of going to be a kind of premature if we just, you know, call it a flow, you know, a flow opinion polls. Well, this is very simple. If the sample size is, you know, if you are not comfortable with the sample size, Malam, naturally the you know information that would come from that sample will not be accurate i will agree with Saul in this case totally you know the the, the the if the sampling is wrong you can't have any good data or any good conclusion from that you know survey uh mr fatty look in research of course some sample size is very important 
but is the sampling strategy that is more significant which, which, which strategy do they use do they use uh, random sampling do they use you know proportional what what type of random sampling size they use that is the issue yeah, malang malang is randomized the problem is not that for me that's not a problem they have about almost 1000 people that's pretty good my problem is the proportional representation of the data if anyone gives me that kind of data it's I do data analysis for a living. And if anybody gives me the data that is skewed like that, that wouldn't be a reliable data. I will flag you it see? for being an unreliable data. It won't be, I, won't, I won't consider it. Yes, because it's not representative of the demographic. Imagine, for example, you're looking at the demographic, uh, the demographic of people who basically play soccer. But you end up deciding in Gambia, but you... Paul, I mean, and se seven out of ten of those people are men. Instead, of, I mean, are women instead of men. That wouldn't be a good sample because more men play soccer in Ghana than women. It's just that simple. So you need to you need to proportionally. Uh, it needs to be proportionate. If it is not proportionate, that data itself wouldn't be reliable. The methodology, I don't have a problem with it because I did see that they did the randomized sampling. They use data and all that stuff, which is pretty good. Is the representation that's the problem? You cannot you cannot infer. You're going to infer anything other than the fact that the representation is biased and I won't consider it a valid data. Look, on the side of representation, I am with you on that. That is the only, you know, that is the, com the common thing, that is the common denominator that both you and I agreed on, actually. That's why I said I'm not here to make a case for them. So I just, in fact, prior before coming, I was trying to contact, you know, the man who even did the presentation so that the man can come and join us to, you know, so we can ask some, some questions. Because myself, I have reservations with the 40%. Can we uh, have the sister Yatu, please? Then, um, Kijera, you can come in. Oh, I was actually just going to say that uh, I believe regardless of the, the veracity of the data, one thing that that 20-something figure about uh, just th that's the only percentage of women they polled is it's clear that even in just data collection in regards to our politics, women are being just not asked, right? So that could be one uh, reason for our, our current political troubles in terms of rhetoric as well in, in our current space like this, this space too. I'm curious about, about that aspect of it, of is this another institutional way that women are uh, pushed out of our politics? Just th this basic thing of uh, telling a scientist to Um, Hi, um, I wasn't going to speak on the data because I don't know much about that. <laughs> I feel like it's been exhausted. Um, what I wanted to talk about, because I think it was uh, Abdul Osal that actually, um, actually touched on accountability with our leaders. And I think it's something that we, that we need to stress because one of the reasons that we have the presidents that we do, whether it was Baro or Jame, and I, I understand in Jame's case, it was a bit tougher because there was no freedom of speech in for us to be able to actually make him accountable for a lot of the things that he did. But I feel like this time around with Baro, we had much more of that space, but we still didn't take advantage of that. Like, for instance, I'm just going to bring up um, a small example, which was when he had recently that interview where he sat with that journalist and talked about digging up graves or whatever to put whatever um, connotations he wanted to put into either. I, I don't know what it was. I don't because I, I don't believe in those things. But anyway, just talking about it sounds crazy. But he was on national TV talking about digging up graves. And the best we could do as a nation was create WhatsApp groups and laugh about it and had talked about it on Twitter. No one held him accountable. They, they see things like that and we make it such a norm. And I, maybe that comes from having a president like Jami in the past that has traumatized us and he has done so much that now the things that we see, the things that we see and hear from our leaders, we take it as, as, as norms that we don't even question it. If this, if this would have happened in another country, someone would have summoned Barra. It was either we would have checked to see if mentally he's even capable to, to be on his own or even to be a functional member of, of society or there's something wrong somewhere. Which, which graves were these? Which families were affected? There's so many questions 
But the fact that we have a president that felt like he was more than capable and in, within a safe space to sit on national TV and say something like that, that alone is alarming to me. And if we don't, if we don't change these aspects, whether it's Barrow or it's, it's um, Usainu Dabo or whoever, this is going to continue because our leaders know that we don't check them. There's no accountability. When we have journalists in these spaces, they don't necessarily ask the real questions. No one really sits down and goes, okay, that, that was something shocking that a president could do that. No one summoned him. No one went back and said, let's have a further discussion. Let's bring him back. Let's see which families were affected. It just became something that was norm. I like that you know we're talking about campaigning and numbers and all of that and we can't even begin to talk about tribalism when the people who are not even who, who don't necessarily care about tribalism or whatever do we even hold our leaders accountable to say okay Osena Dabo or Barra you have to debunk these 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 um speculations that people have the fact that people think that Osena Dabo is when you think Osena Dabo you think of Mandingos and has he ever debunked that and if he's done it once or twice can we make him do it more and more for people to not feel that that's that's a real thing, whether it's real or not? We don't hold him accountable. Now, unless we're able to do that, things will never change. I'm glad we come from a generation where we, we have changed, where we are questioning these things. But if we don't buckle down in the next 20, 30 years or so, this is not going to change. We're going to have these leaders who are going to come in for a period of time, get in, take what they have and go because they think that we're a joke to them. And this is what we deserve. Now it's up to us to change that. It's up to us to say, you know what, enough is enough. But until we can make these decisions, until we can stand up to them and show them, hey, we're not these people. We're not the, the generation that was on the jamme. A lot of the things are not going to change. And that's just my point. Thank you. Yeah, um, <laughs> you really cracked me up about the whole... Um, you know, when Barra was talking about, uh, you know, digging graves and stuff. But the problem is, this is something the Gambian people do. So it's not like Barra is some kind of an anomaly, he's some crazy person. I mean, people do this in Gambia, and this is absolutely normal. The marabou stuff, this whole crazy stuff, is actually absolutely normal. So Barra, I mean, who's going to hold him accountable? The people in the parliament? Those people are actually doing anti-revising body. Where are they going to go? You know, if we start people, well, those people are incapable of holding anybody accountable because they don't even know what their jobs are, right? And the other issue you raise about tribalism, I think it's complicated because I think uh, Satan uh, Nabane, Dr. Nabane, wrote a really good piece this morning, and I, I really agree with her on that. That UDP was not created as a Maninka party, or APRC was not created as a Jola party, or whatever. This is all by default, it's not by design. People look at these people because they believe they belong to their tribes and they end up actually corralling around them for that idea of a tribe. But it mm. wasn't like these parties were created uh, for specifically for a tribe or something. It's a little bit complicated. So that's why people like Usain Daba, and we need to understand the competence of Usain Daba when it comes to tribalism, right? This is a guy who was born in the up country, but literally spent the last 60 years or so living among Olofs and all those people in Banjul and in Combo. His understanding of tribe is very complicated, very different from what the normal person will understand what tribe is. Because to him, tribalism does not exist. And I think that's the danger in Gandhi. Because politicians, some of them, don't have the competency to understand that actually tribalism indeed exists in the Gandhi. But they don't have the skills or the wherewithal to actually express this in a way that would actually make sense. Because they lack the depth. They don't have the depth. And that is another problem, because if you tell us in the Dabo, oh yeah, people are supporting you because you're tribal, it's like, wait a minute, I never talk about tribe, so why, why is that true? And, you know, I did see some of his, um, one of his campaigns, uh, maybe like three weeks ago or so, when he was saying that reverse tribalism or whatever, and that was really confusing to me, because I had no idea what he was trying to explain. But on the whole, we can hold our politicians accountable, but these tribes were not created, I mean, these parties were not created out of a tribe, per se. Is by default the people are the ones who attach the idea of tribe to these parties. So it's really hard for the parties to actually disown them. Because really, how are you going to do that? It's really hard. And I hope that the political science department or the sociology department at the UTG will do some kind of research on this to, you know, better, you know, explain this kind of intricacies because it's complicated. And 
I would suggest any uh, ev- any everybody to read Satan's piece from this morning. I think that was a really good piece and how she basically kind of navigated, you know, shared that line and whatnot. I agree with everything you're saying, Sleiman. And and I think to be honest, um, once we're able to get that work going on the ground, then we can still have people voting fairly. Because honestly, like I'm 30 years old, and this was the first time this year that I've ever seen a manifesto. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with the fact that I didn't have any access to it or whatever, but I went to school in the Gambia and everything. I never even used to see it on GRTS or whatever. It was. I've never truly seen a manifesto to, um, until this year. And I really think, fine, I get it. It's going to be difficult for them to debunk that. But as party leaders, you can't tell me in the Gambia that Hussein Odabo isn't aware that his party is associated with Mandingos or Halifasada or whatever. If they care enough, and if this is about uniting things and, 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 and national development and movement, this is, this is where they will start the work. Because people, most of the people voting are voting based on, on tribes. And they know that. And most of them take advantage of that. And that, has, that honestly has to change. That education has to, un, unless we're able to do that, there won't be real change until 20, 30 years later when the other generation comes. Because our generation and the generation before that doesn't necessarily care about tribalism or whatever. They're going to start voting based on education and awareness and these manifestos. So it's beginning to seem like we're just going to have to start, sit down and wait for that change to effectively happen um, until, the, until then. Before- we don't hold our leaders accountable. Just look at when that was it, 32 million went into the president's um, wife, the first lady's account. What was done? She was not invited for questioning. How did the money end up there? So we have to wait for, for how many months to get a flimsy explanation of why that money went into the account. I mean, hate Israel or like them, but whatever, but it does not happen there because at least there are some constitutional mechanisms that ensure that even a sitting prime minister can be charged for corruption. Okay, we've seen what recently happened in France. Um, we've seen what happened in South Africa, etc. So having the legal instruments and having the institutions that can and so that these oversight mechanisms, etc., put in place is important. Because one thing I believe is that the Gambian is not democratic. The Gambian is not someone who likes accountability. Okay? People do stuff. You question why they do it. You try to hold them accountable or just ask for transparency. And you are simply because of that, you are labeled as an enemy or whatsoever. Because no one wants to be held accountable. Okay? The government does not want to be held accountable. A good number of our opposition, um, the alternative parties, um, do not want to be held accountable. So who is holding who accountable? So if you have that culture whereby accountability is not part of the culture, that democratic culture is not part of the culture, it becomes important to have institutions that can, of course, this is controversial, I know, but at least to have institutions that can see how best to instill those ideas and ideals, etc. You may say that, okay, just look at the IEC, for example. Before, uh, I mean, the 1997 constitution, we did not have a separate independent electoral commission that defines the rules, etc. But, I mean, with the electoral degree that came and later and all these electoral acts that we are talking about, we've had an independent body that got to deal deal with everything that has to do with, uh, I mean, do with elections. And now we see how that has developed a culture in that organization. So having to create new institutions, empowering existing ones and ensuring independence from executive control, etc., would really help to ensure that that transparency and accountability we are looking for is really in place. But otherwise, I mean, it becomes very much difficult. People that vote for UDP and Maninko or whatever, that's not the argument I make. And I didn't make the argument that um, people are not ba- voting based on party lines. I've actually... I've scripted an article and uh, published an article on this actually uh, about some months ago. That's not the argument I'm making at all. Uh, the argument I was making was that Yatu wanted us to hold our leaders accountable. Like, so the media should, after Sinodar, would hit him hard, a little bit harder to dissociate himself from the idea of tribe and stuff. And my, the argument I, I made was that Sinodar, UDP was not, I said, these parties were not created around the idea of tribe. UDP was not, APRC wasn't. It wasn't by design, it's by default. So it's really hard for them to dissociate themselves from these parties when now uh, they're tethered, basically wedded to the idea of an identity. 
and like you said, identity politics is everywhere. It's not immune to the Gambia. It's actually here in America. And mostly, yeah, the dominant tribe in America, the white tribe is the dominant. And, you know, they tend to skew towards a certain demographic. And that is true everywhere in the world. Tribal politics is everywhere in the world. It's not just a Gambian problem. But I didn't make the argument that people weren't voting. I mean, the UDP base is solidly Mandinka. Nobody's questioning that. Um, uh, the uh, the, the APRC base is solidly um, Jola, and the Mamakande base is solidly Olaf. I uh, solidly uh, Pula. The Halifasala um, base, I'm not sure. It could be Olaf or whatever. I, I'm really not sure about that because of where he because of where he represents, which is Sarakunda, which is one of the most diverse places in the Gambia. So the argument I'm making is not that okay, the you know the UDP the base is not Maninko or something. Actually, that is true. But in a in a political environment that is bereft of ideas. People have to organize somehow. And this is one of the ways people organize, and that's tribe. And uh, the, the, the other problems that I raised was that people like Usino Dabo, they don't have the competency to explain. I don't, and not the competency, but I don't think they have the, 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 the they don't have the, the will is not there, number one. But number two, how are you even going to craft that in an election that you have to win? That, oh, yeah, you know, there's tribalism because Maninkas are voting for me because I'm Maninka. I think that's a, it's a very, it's intricate. It's a little bit more complex than that. The problem to me is not the voters. It's us, the people, who are the problem. No, and it's not the politicians, either. it's the voters who are the problem. Because these political parties were not created out of ethnic groups. It's not by design, it's by default. And we need to start asking the questions why that is. You know, Baro is Mandinka, why are they not voting for him? Usaino Dabo represents something. <laughs> To, uh, um, uh, to Mandinka that Baro does not. What is that? And I think that's a sociological question. It's a political it's... question. But I, I, let me just finish one thing too. You did mention that, you know, and we all agree that tribal politics is everywhere in the world. But, you know, in, in, especially in Africa. But if you look at the African experience in Senegal, Senegal is an interesting country. Half of the Senegalese population is, is Olaf. They still haven't voted for a president that's Olaf. They have not. And they have, I mean, Senghor was number one Syrian and number two, he couldn't even speak proper Olaf, and he was Christian too. So the political maturation of Senegal is a little bit different from other parts of Africa. They are probably an anomaly. But in the rest of the African, uh, the African continent, that's actually how politics works. And that's actually how it works in America, and that's how it works in Britain too. But yes, identity politics is absolutely seminal to any kind of political... What will make the change is civil societies bringing about a serious change that is if we want to move if we are serious as a nation if we want to move forward so we need to start with uh, our institutions uh, because uh, without this institutional reform accountability is always going to be an illusion for our people uh, and again if you look at the concept of accountability accountability uh, is political so it's because it is it is a political concept uh, people often, especially in Gambia, people often shy away from it uh, because uh, we, I think we said it here before, like uh, if you look at our the, many of the political supporters, uh, many of the political debates tend to be personal. So, uh, you know, having office holders accountable, you are always going to have different opinions. Uh, with regards to this. So that is why having strong institutions, this is something which will help the Gambia with regards to accountability, transparency, and, and all and the like. Uh, so these are some of the issues I think, in my opinion, that uh, we need to work on. But because if we don't work on these issues normally, uh, and I also, a friend of mine, I think Len talked about something like, is it constitutional uh, reform or, you know, having a new constitution? Look, the issue of the constitution, in my opinion, uh, I said this before on many, many, many platforms before, that uh, it is just going to be the same, like a waste of taxpayers' money, just like what, what happened, you know, not long ago. Because in my opinion, uh, uh, what we just need, we have our 1997 constitution. So what we need is there are certain clauses that we are not satisfied there. So we need to just amend that, that those those uh, clauses. But there is no need to use taxpayers' money again to go through the same cycle of you know uh, seeking opinions from people you know nationwide. Uh, I think 
that is going to be you know that is that is just going to be the same mess the, just like uh, what what uh, the borough government you know did not long ago because i i see no reason in it engage these people on what are some of the things that they want to see in the new constitution so just go to the 1997 constitution revise it to the expectation and aspiration of Gambian citizens. This is what we need in Gambia. But like uh, spending another dollars, you know, millions of millions of dollars on, you know, a new constitution, I think it doesn't worth it because uh, uh, the value, it, it, it has no value actually. We need to engage uh, citizens, but we need to engage them carefully because if we don't, we are just going to destroy, you know, public value. Uh, because we, we, these are some of the issues that I think in Gambia we need, but more so, uh, more so this institutional reform. Because without strong institutional accountability, is just going to be another you know waste of time. And again, that is why uh, the current election, that is the upcoming election, is so massively important in Gambia. Uh, me, I think, in fact, it's not an election, it's kind of a referendum, whether we want to forge ahead as a nation to meet our socioeconomic uh, aspirations as a country, or we just want to go back. Because I have seen some tendency in Baro, uh, you know, that are kind of similar, like James, you know, uh, authoritarianism uh, doctrines, normally, if, if, if I can use that term. So this election is kind of going to be one of the most consequential in our in our lifetime because it is kind of a referendum whether we want to forge ahead or we just want to uh, go back uh, to the Jame era because Baro has you know uh, people have seen signs of that tendency in Baro so I think uh, these are some of the issues at play I think I can stop here and allow Brother Lamin to come in. Yeah, thank you, Malam. Um, yeah, uh, Sally, on the matter of uh, accountability, I think we are heading to the right direction. Uh, of recent, there have been a lot of you know chaos going on, and uh, the UDP uh, uh, give a platform to one of one one of um, former Jame ministers who have been adversely mentioned in the. Uh, TRLC for right violation. We could see a lot of resentment among the party members that forced the leader uh, or the party leader, Useno, to come out and, and take full responsibility of their mistake. I think, you know, uh, uh, we are heading to a right direction in terms of, you know, holding our leaders accountable. However, we, you know, there should be more <coughs> of that kind to our political leaders. No, so to ensure that you know they are fully accountable for any actions that they have done, yeah. So with regards to uh, noble, noble cook or I don't know, noble cook, noble cook was talking about um, tribalism, you know, on on party politics in Gambia. But I think you know you've made a very. I'm gonna ask you this, and then uh, it will be uh, the same question for or the speakers to take on, um, what would you consider to be our biggest uh, problem facing the Gambia? <laughs> uh, okay, so from an outsider, again, I, I like to emphasize the fact that I don't live in Gambia. Just looking from the outside, I think we have a crabs in a bucket mentality. Um, I think our biggest issue is we do not support each other um, we're still carrying over a lot of negativity until we start to collaborate or rather change our mental mindset. Um, I think it doesn't matter who the sitting president is, we're, we're still going to be in the same position. Um, and I say that because, you know, we just see the level of selfishness going on. Um, even when we get fundings to do good in our country, is the people you give those funds, is the contractors, the people who are supposed to work on the ground to make the nation better are the ones stealing it. They're the ones flying to Dubai, shopping, buying properties outside. I mean, at some point, it's almost self-hate. Um, another example is, I think someone had mentioned the charity 
which the first lady took, there was no explanation until years later. You as a Gambian taking money from your own people, it's problematic. Um, so until we start looking at everyone together as a whole, that we're in this together, um, I think we're, we're going to be in this very position for a very long time. So that's my opinion. Thank you. Like. Well, I think for me, Gambia's biggest problem is the impoverishment in the country. And I think sometimes we tend to emphasize other variables as being very much fundamental in our political discourse, etc. But I would be very materialistic here and say the problem has been um, the distribution of resources. People tend to go to a person or support a person that they think, well, um, if the person assumes power, well, they would get their share from the cake, whether that is um, accessed in a fair way or is accessed through nepotism also does not matter to them, okay? And we've seen this over again and again. And if anything to take from the TRRC is that the Gambian is very much materialistic. The Gambian living in that impoverished society makes him to do many things that, I mean, becomes abnormal and out of the law. We've seen people at the TRRC say, what would I do? I had a family to feed. I won't, I mean, I cannot leave the country. I cannot leave my family, okay? So instead of putting the national interest, whatever that means, uh, first they decided to put themselves and their families first. I think that is the reason why people become very, uh, people practice nepotism. I think that is why people run to parties because for many reasons they believe that by joining this party, by supporting this man, whether he is wrong or he is right, would give me the job that I want. Today, the people, the wall of Manding Kajola, the educated, ignorant, that is supporting Barrow, defending him in public, the PhD holder, the master's holder, you name them, simply does so because he has a job to protect, okay? The person doing it simply does so because his family is in the government also. That is why, okay? In the past, that was the reason. And that is why we've seen whenever people were sacked from the Jamaica government for one reason or another, they tend to leave the country or then to start supporting other parties. We've seen people who supported Burrow, defended him to death, whereas we all know that from day one he has not been doing the right thing, but they defended him that particular time or moment when they had a job to protect. But once that job is gone, then they become part of the people criticizing Burrow. We've seen this over again and again. And therefore I think poverty being one of the things that is really affecting the country. And we've talked about this, um, what is it called? Is it marabutism or whatsoever? People going to maraboots or blessings or whatsoever to pray for them. It's just because of the impoverishment and people feel that, okay, this is the only way out for them. I mean, if people were earning decent salaries, if people were getting everything that they need and everyone around them is getting that, the same thing that they are having, they wouldn't care about someone looking at them or someone taking them to a marabou to kill them or whatsoever. But because, yeah, sometimes you are in a good position and you feel, oh, I need to protect myself because my neighbors are not at the same level, so they envy me, then they start going to marabouts. And it's the same thing. Others feel, well, I need to go to a marabou to get one, I mean. I want to thank everyone, guys, and have a good weekend and be safe, stay safe. See you all next weekend.